Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stammel Major. In this episode, we're beginning Alan Colas's Around the World Alone, and this English translation was published by Barron's Educational Series in 1978. This book is dedicated to my comrades, the men of the tall ships of yesteryear, those unpolished noblemen with gnarled hands, and the men who race on the open seas today, who are the heirs of those seamen long dead. Chapter 1. When I'm Grown Up When I was a child, I had a recurring dream. I was sitting on a chair with my feet on the ground. On one of my birthdays, I think it was my seventh, my father built me a diminutive armchair. As it happened, it was low enough for my feet to rest on the ground when I was sitting on it. My father, in giving me what I wanted, had taught me the meaning of hope. It was probably the first time I realized something very important, that dreams are meant to be fulfilled. That was the best gift that my father ever gave me. When I'm grown up, I used to repeat that phrase over and over again like any child, and I think I learned from it to profit from the encounters I was to have in later life. There are moments in our lives when we become suddenly aware, as though our understanding were eliminated by a sudden flash of lightning, that we have just crossed a frontier. We know at that moment that we have climbed another rung on our chosen ladder. It may be nothing more than a child's armchair, or it may be something much more serious. In either case, we are aware that we have grown. Anyone who gives himself wholeheartedly to sailing, to sailing on the open sea, to transoceanic sailing competition, knows there is one place that he will have to go if he has any sense of all of the tradition that he has inherited. To anyone who knows the sea, it is not necessarily even to name the place. It is a Mecca, an almost mythic place that every seaman carries in his heart but you can't decide to try Cape Horn the way that you would decide to go for a swim. All sailors want, someday, to have a try at the long route round the world. At the same time, we all know that the preparation for such an undertaking is long, slow and arduous. It requires patience, the patience and endurance of the sea itself. Only then can we feel that we are grown up and worthy of the ordeal. Or, to put it simply, we are willing to go through all the preparation simply because it is something we want to do, because we feel that we must, because there comes a time in a seaman's life when there is no other way of expressing himself. To the sailor, Cape Horn is a bit of a bravura, the most beautiful page in the history of the sea. It represents the saga of navigators who, for a moment, became Roland in the pass at Ronxvalles. To sail around Cape Horn is to pass the supreme test of seamanship. It is to become one of that heroic and sometimes anonymous group that is the subject of ancient legends. Having said that, I must add that I set goals for myself more precise than a vague intention of rounding Cape Horn. I wanted to do something that no one else had ever done. As far as sailing was concerned, this meant taking a trimaran around the world by way of the three capes, with or without a crew. I also wanted to follow in the wake, so to speak, of Sir Francis Chichester by equaling the time of the great clipper ships of the 19th century. The record of the old British Lion, 160 days for the voyage to Sydney and 120 to return, seemed to me to be within my capability. After all, I had a highly perfected weapon, my boat, and more important perhaps, 
there existed between my boat and myself a perfect accord, the same kind of accord we sometimes see between a jockey and his horse. We say that the jockey and the horse are part of each other. The time had come for me, without over-romanticizing the situation, to measure myself against the clipper ships and, in the measuring, perhaps to win my golden spur. In 1873, the great English sailing ship Cutty Sark set out on her maiden voyage to Sydney. She reached it after 69 days at sea. It was a record that left all rival clipper ships far behind, a record that the ship retained on each successive crossing. A hundred years later, another sailing vessel left the channel for the same destination. This one was carrying no merchandise. She had no crew, for she had none of the great square sails of the clippers for a crew to handle. There was only one man aboard an aluminum boat with a steel frame and synthetic lines, a man whose only cargo was the determination to follow in the wake of the clipper ships regardless of the cost, all to see if a man could still sail around the southern capes as fast as his ancestors did. It has been a long time since the propeller replaced sails on the commercial ships of every sea of the globe, but between cruises and races the pleasure sailor still dreams of emulating the traditions to which he regards himself as heir. He still has visions of the fabled runs of tall ships with sails billowing like great clouds against the sky. Cape Horn. The name itself seemed to stir the sail of the trimaran. Becalmed in the night as it returned from Newport, bearing the laurels of winning the single-handed transatlantic race. To win the transatlantic race is to breathe the air of Olympus, more rarefied even than that at the top of Mount Everest. It is to empty, in one great swallow, the cup of a joy so great that, even when the clouds begin to dissipate and the winner has to return to earth, he remains stunned by the very intensity of it. Except, except that behind the rose-coloured haze rising from one's victory, one sees looming another mountain, and this one is higher, more beautiful, more majestic. It has the shape of a cone, and its slopes are wild and alien. Waves pound at its base with savage force, and there one finds written one of the harshest pages of the story of human adventure. It is called Cape Horn, and it stands like a dark sentinel, marked by grandeur and by tragedy, in the glacial solitude at the extreme tip of the southern American continent, at the crossroads of the great lanes of the sailing ships. Once the vision was glimpsed, it seemed that the way to attain it boiled down merely to a few details like finding a boat. I tried. My efforts usually began, Dear Sir, and always put the same question more or less straightforwardly. Have you thought about rounding the horn, and if so, are you looking for a crewman? Invariably, the reply came, Indeed not. Why on earth would anyone want to round the horn? I mean, that's not the sort of thing one does today, old boy. All right, I told myself, eyeing the sour grapes. Let them keep their boats. I'll work something out for myself. Somehow. Something that won't have anything to do with them. What I had in the back of my mind, since there seemed to be no other way in any case, was a solitary voyage following the most direct course, with a stop, a port of call, some would insist, midway. That is how it was done in the old days, when sailing was a livelihood rather than a sport, and the seas were populated by workers instead of yachtsmen, when ships rounded the Cape of Good Hope in search of wool, gold and wheat from the lands of the fabled east, and then returned by way of the horn. Let me go back for a moment, without repeating the story of Penduic IV, 
and give a brief account of my 1972 victory in the transatlantic race. I'd also like to tell you about my affair with that particular boat. I remember very well the first time I set eyes on her. It was in 1968. In fact, it was during the month of May when French students swarmed into the streets of Paris and manned the barricades. I had just returned from Australia to find Paris in turmoil and the students converted into experts on throwing paving stones. Since I had no taste for that particular sport, it seemed to me in much better taste and certainly more useful to go to Lorient, where my old boss, Eric Tabali, was getting his boat ready for the single-handed transatlantic in June. At that time, Tabali's spider-like trimaran looked a bit like a seafaring monster. As yet, no one had seen what something like the 120-foot Vendredi 13 could do in the water, and disproportion was still disproportion. This boat was 70 feet long, with a beam of slightly over 35 feet. That this tub, with only one man on board, would try to race across the North Atlantic, which is one of the most difficult courses anywhere, well, it was more than most of us could imagine. All sailors remember what happened during the third transatlantic race. Penduik 4, by then, had created a sensation and was the favourite to win until she collided with a cargo ship in the English Channel the very first night of the race. Tabali was obliged to limp into Plymouth Harbour for repairs. 68 hours later, he set out again, but this time his anemometer was not functioning properly and Eric had to give it up. The trimaran was, in effect, a prototype. It was an experimental model, and Eric had not had enough time to get all the bugs out of it before the race. Once everything had been attended to on the boat, Eric set out again. This time, he was not alone. Olivia de Casalsen and I were also on board. Almost immediately, we set a new record, 10 days and 11 hours from the southern tip of Tenerife in the Canary Islands to Martinique. Our average speed was 11 knots, a somewhat better time than the previous record of 12 days and 13 hours set by Atlantic during the Emperor's Race of 1905 between New York and Lizard Head. For me, it was a period of blissful discovery. The boat was fantastic. She had even greater potential than I had expected when I first saw her on the launching ramp at Lorient. Several months later, there occurred the famous Los Angeles-Honolulu run, this was at a time when the Trans-Pacific race was limited exclusively to single-hulled craft. In spite of this, one hour after the other boats had sailed out of Los Angeles Harbour, Tabali decided to catch up with the others and participate in the race. At the time, I had no idea that the whole purpose of the race, for Eric, was to engage in a bit of commerce, or that the reason he had intruded into this restricted race was to help Eric sell his boat. It was only when we reached Honolulu and I saw Eric nail a large for-sail sign on the mast that I understood what was going on. It was also at that moment that an idea sprang full-grown into my mind. I re-experienced the intense emotion that I had felt at Plymouth as I watched the boat sail out under my very eyes in the transatlantic. I felt certain I would be able to handle this strange-looking trimaran alone and efficiently. Even though there had been three of us when we sailed across the Atlantic, the fact was that during each of my watches, I was alone to do everything that had to be done. Each watch had been a sample of solo sailing, eight hours a day of being alone on the boat. Moreover, I had had the advantage of being able to observe an expert. Eric was winner of the 1964 race and his handling of the boat was enough to polish any rough edges I might still have had. In such circumstances, a seaman quickly develops certain ambitions. Fifty years ago, 
A competent first mate no doubt watched his captain and learned as much as he could, with the idea eventually of striking out on his own. That, of course, was the logical reason why, between the times that I was sailing with Eric, I signed up as crewman in as many races as I could. In 1969, for example, I was aboard Gaston Defries Palinodi when we won France's Mediterranean Championship. Later, for the Fastnet, I was aboard Coriolan. After the race, the boat's owner, Christian de Gallia, asked me to sail the boat back to France for him. What I was doing was learning the seaman's trade, even though on the way I was not always able to avoid the stumbling blocks that human beings create for other human beings. I felt that I had to assert myself. Then I had to cut a path for myself through the jungle known as the world of yachting. The smaller the dog, the louder he barks, and I was fairly small. I was something of an outsider to yachting specialists. I was not even from one of France's traditional maritime provinces, nor had I yet been at Trinity-sur-Mer or La Rochelle, the holy places of French yachting. Today, I can understand how it must have rubbed yachtsmen the wrong way to see me shamelessly sign on as crew aboard a prestigious boat. It was like an elevator operator in the Empire State Building offering to guide mountain climbers up Mount Everest because he had experience and high altitudes. Eric's for sale sign did him little good in Honolulu. There were no buyers. We took the boat to Tahiti and then to New Caledonia. Still no buyers. Between sailings, I had returned to France to try to find financial backing that would enable me to buy the boat. I spent my time warming the chairs in the waiting rooms of banks, trying to interest publishers in my project, telling my story to all and sundry in the innocent belief that it was appealing enough to get me what I wanted. Even now, I'm astonished at how naive the story was. Once upon a time, there was a sailor who would cross the Atlantic on a large ship. He was first mate to a great captain, and he can swear by all the gods of the sea that it really is an extraordinary boat. The captain has now put this boat up for sale, and the first mate needs your help to buy it. They probably believed me, but they didn't offer to help, despite the eloquence of the cards I had describing me as Tabley's first mate. I was learning that reputations were not transferable. There was only one thing left to do. Eric had asked me to take the boat to California for the Trans-Pacific race, and I had already sent in a letter of resignation to my employer. Even in the supersonic age, the idea of sailing the Pacific is the stuff of which dreams are made. My father, however, had taught me not to believe that dreams were dreams. Since that time, I had always regarded my dreams as realities. Between Panduic Four and myself, I had immediately sensed the existence of a relationship that left absolutely nothing to be desired. It was a relationship that did not have to be, indeed could not be, explained either to myself or to anyone else. For the moment, the price tag on this relationship was 225,000 francs, about $45,000. There was nothing I could do but accept Tabali's offer to take the boat to California. Obviously, I could not be simultaneously in Australia and at sea, and I did not hesitate for a moment between the two. I would go ahead with Panduic 4. And so, with virtually no assets but my belief in the boat, I made the step. I used my Australian savings as a down payment. For the balance, I managed to secure a bank loan, committing myself irrevocably to a series of instalment payments. From that time on, I learned what it was to sweat out each payment. I experienced too the periodic dread of having the boat of which I was the precarious owner attached for non-payment.
Somehow, by turning out stories, photographs, illustrated articles, etc., I was able to meet this monthly obligation with fair regularity. Thereafter, matters progressed in such a way that, somehow, one beautiful day in June 1972, I found myself in the starting lineup at Plymouth, ready for a solo dash as a participant in the transatlantic. The idea of entering the transatlantic had developed naturally and gradually. No one sits down one day and declares, well, I'm going to win the transatlantic, the way that a child says, I'm going to be a fireman. Instead, little by little, below the level of consciousness, things fall into place in your mind. When a student at the piano has practiced his scales long enough, he feels the urge to be alone on stage with his instrument. In my case, it was as though I had caught a pass and saw a clear field ahead of me and saw too that I was in good enough shape to outdistance any potential tackler. As Eric Tabley's mate, I had felt that I was living my life fully and enjoying every minute of it. I did not yet understand that the sea, which I was learning in Eric's company, was already challenging me at the personal level. I saw no further than the simple pleasure of sailing with a thoroughly competent seaman. Gradually, however, the joy of sailing around the world aboard this old, patched hull disappeared and was replaced first by the desires and longings common to all races, and finally by an overriding determination to be first at the finish line. The desire to become a really expert sailor is not the unhealthy offshoot of a desire for domination. For someone who practices and takes pleasure in his art, virtuosity is the logical product of a determination to go one step further. It is, in effect, the joyful reward of a job well done. At the time of the transatlantic, I was not exactly an inexperienced outsider. Behind me, there was a solo cruise, an unusual one that was, in fact, my real preparation for the transatlantic, the voyage in the trimaran from Tahiti to Trinity Sumer that lasted from December 1971 to February 1972. In Tahiti, I met Teora, the friend and companion who is still with me today. We decided that she would accompany me back to France. It seemed a marvellous opportunity, two people alone on the endless sea. Unfortunately, nature decided otherwise. On the first leg of the voyage between Tahiti and Mauritius, Teura was so seasick that she had to fly the rest of the way. Meanwhile, I would undertake the social and economic endurance test of a non-stop solo cruise from Mauritius to France. It was my first solo voyage. I was ready, in fact, to do anything, both for the mere pleasure of it and for the preparation that it afforded me for the future. I rounded the Cape of Good Hope and sailed northward in the Atlantic, reaching Trinity Sumer on February 19, 1972, after 66 days at sea. It was a record at the time for a solo voyage, 150 nautical miles per day over a 10,000-mile course. This represented a clear improvement over the records established by Eric in the transatlantic. The one true exploit of my life as a seaman, I think, is contained in that solitary trek through difficult weather in a boat already tired from an around-the-world voyage, a trek through days and sleepless nights of sailing until my hands were so swollen that I could hardly move them. By the end of the voyage, I had lost 20 pounds. This is how I ended the chapter of my book that had to do with this cruise. I feel as if I weigh a ton and I can think of only one thing, sleep. My eyes are swollen from lack of it. In my mind, I'm already at the starting line for the transatlantic. And it was true. 
the 3,000 miles of the transatlantic had already been covered during my preparatory solo from Tahiti. No one knew that I was ready, and everyone's favourite was the huge schooner Vendredi 13, belonging to the Lelouch clan and piloted by Jean-Yves Terlan. The story of that race has been told many times, and I will not tell it again. I have a marvellous memory of a voyage of 20 days, 13 hours and 15 minutes, of records broken, and, in mid-race, my extraordinary and absolutely impossible overtaking of Vendredi 13, which, for me, was like a victory. The second and final victory, of course, was on Friday, July 7th. I was sitting in the cockpit, absolutely unable to move. I could feel the tears running down my cheeks. I remembered the year of dreaming and preparing, the sacrifices of my family, the support of my friends, the joys, the disappointments. Then I cut the line. I had won. I was living the most beautiful moment of my life. I was, in fact, so happy that I could not express my feelings in words. I had not only won, I had won a race of experts. I had proved that my love affair with the triumran was an affair of the heart as well as of the mind, and that the heart is never wrong. I was now in a position to repay all my debts, for after the race itself, there is always the race for money. The telling and retelling of the race, the sale of articles and photographs, the writing of the book on the transatlantic, and of the voyage around the world, that had not only preceded the transatlantic, but had, in reality, determined the outcome of it. One year after Newport, I was at last an independent man, master of my own boat. The chair was solid, and my feet were resting firmly on the ground. Oh, that's the end I of today's chapter. Of We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Challenge was now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link for my boat in the podcast and description. Myself. And there the we have a growing community of people just like yourself Cape who are Horn. interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level, and there, for $20 a month, you get access to the one-hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty-gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today, so I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.